0: a student at Metro State University of Denver, as well as an organizer with the Denver Justice Project. And the Denver Justice Project works on ending mass incarceration, seeking racial justice, and transforming the nature of law enforcement. And this is a podcast focusing on the homeless experience in Denver. And when I think of homelessness in Denver, the phrase I think of is, why is Michael Marshall dead? And that phrase became a movement because in 2015 a homeless black man who was also mentally ill was killed in the Denver jail and during the 2016 Martin Luther King Day celebration the community retook that event as a means to bring attention to his death and the same day that they received notice that they were going to release the videotapes in his death was the same day that the city of Denver announced that there would be no charges in his brutal murder and so the community continues to demand answers in his death and his murder, especially because it resembles the uh, case of Marvin Booker, who was a homeless street preacher who was also killed by Denver law enforcement. And the the cases of Marvin Booker and Michael Marshall are two of the most drastic consequences that uh, occur as a result of the criminalization of homelessness in Denver. And Michael Marshall, uh, when he died, it was because he was staying at a hotel And he was looking for his Bible because he was experiencing a mental episode. And so he requested that the hotel call the police. And so when the police showed up, they arrested him and brought him to jail on charges of trespassing. And trespassing is a charge that is constantly assigned to people who are violating the homeless camping ban, or sorry, the urban camping ban, uh, which is viewed as more of a survival ban. Because in addition to uh, making it illegal to use any form of shelter, which includes blankets, or sleeping bags. It also makes it illegal to sleep in public. And instead of getting tickets that say that you are violating a camping ban, what uh, people typically get are tickets that say that you are trespassing on public space or that you are in violation of a lawful order, which makes it really hard to actually challenge some of these charges in court. And the urban camping ban is something that is a policy that was created in 2011 by the Denver City Council. And it was contested vigorously by the community, but still remains a lot today. Another incident, incident that involved uh, people getting arrested for trespassing was in 2015 when uh, some individuals were camping in Curtis Park to set up a tiny homes village and the city had ordered eviction notices, but they had stayed there. Um, and some of these individuals included members of Denver Homeless Out Loud. but The individual stayed there, and as a result, the city responded with upwards of 70 law enforcement officers, including SWAT, and brought riot control vehicles, as well as helicopters, to effectively arrest 10 people. And so I interviewed one of those individuals who was arrested, who is also a student at uh, the University of Colorado, Denver, and her name is Kobe Wixeler, and she's a student organizer, as well as somebody who um, has been associating with Denver Homeless Out Loud, and so here's that interview with Kobe. Um, so state your name and any kind of organizations that you're affiliated with or belong to.
1: My name is Kobe Wixilar. I am affiliated with a student organization, um class of mine for Auraria Student Action. And then I work with Denver Homeless Out Loud. Um, I'm also part of a student organization called the Auraria Climate Justice Coalition.
0: So can you explain how you got involved with Denver Homeless Out Loud?
1: Yeah, I knew some of the folks that organized with um, Denver Homeless Out Loud and started to get a bit more involved and then on October 24th in 2015 there was a tiny home build day that happened um, on a plot of land that was owned by a Denver Housing Authority. It's called Sustainability Park. And so it's DHA, so it's public property, and they're supposed to be responsible for building um, affordable, again, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but like accessible housing. And so on that day, there was a permaculture action day um, because that land was low-income housing that ended up being torn down. And then for about five years, there was a permaculture garden that was there trying to just teach folks how to grow food. and be more self-sustaining and they had to move because DHA was selling that land to a private developer. Um, And so hundreds of people came out and the garden was moved, but also five tiny homes were built that day. Um, And so that was kind of when I started to get a lot more involved. And it was really neat because there's obviously not enough shelter beds. And in the course of one day, there were five tiny homes. That would have been five people that didn't have to sleep. On the streets um, and that night ten of us got arrested um, and the tiny homes were stolen, broken down in trucks um, and taken by taken by the city so that was when I first got involved um, on like a more intimate scale.
0: Can you explain the concept behind the tiny homes and kind of why they're important to solving the homeless issue in Denver?
1: Yeah so homelessness is an industry in our economy there are a lot of people that make a lot of money off of poverty Um, and so i think it's important when we're talking about homelessness often the conversation gets shifted to just talking about services um, but not addressing why someone would end up without housing why certain individuals um, and identities and communities (laughs) are more likely to experience homelessness to experience the trauma that can put you there systemic poverty and one of the big ideas behind the tiny homes and tiny home villages that we're seeing pop up around the country and excitingly um here in denver is that we have to actually be creating a different way of approaching homelessness that addresses human dignity that actually starts to get at the notion that people are still valuable people are still people even if they're poor Um, radical concept in the United States it seems Um, sorry if I'm being too political but um, (laughs) uh, and so with tiny homes ideas that people have a lot more autonomy they can actually start to regain a feeling that they're part of a community Um, in some of the research that I've done and just, like, from talking to people, it doesn't feel good or empowering if you go get services that you need and you're treated like shit. Um, and if you're treated like there's something wrong with you for being in need of a place to sh- to sleep, to eat, um, things that are fundamental to sustaining a, a human body. Um, and so with Tiny Homes and Tiny Home Village, the ideas we all... We can't just throw a mat on a floor and call that a solution. Um, People need to feel that they're capable of participating in decisions about their own lives. And they need to be part of a community. Um, And not everyone can function. Say even if there were enough shelter beds, which there's definitely not, that doesn't work for folks that maybe don't want to align with a certain faith that those shelters require. Maybe they aren't, like, don't feel welcome because their gender or their gender identity is not accepted at a men's or a women's shelter. Maybe people have pets. Maybe people have families. Maybe people want to be with their partners. Maybe people, like, just for whatever reason, PTSD, like, do not feel safe or comfortable being in those situations, and I think this is where... it it really captures how a lot of our rhetoric and our approach to solving homelessness is really dehumanizing because often it's kind of that like beggars can't be choosers like well if you are on the streets you obviously did something to deserve it so don't complain if there's a shelter bed for you you don't deserve anything better how dare you ask to actually be part of a community how dare you ask to like feel dignified and worthy and participate and so having a tiny home village Helps people to reintegrate into a community to feel that they have that they're empowered to make decisions about their own lives, Um, which again is like seems like a pretty basic um, concept. So, the idea there is actually shifting relationships, not just trying to put band-aids on wounds. Because, my personal opinion, and I think that the research and backs this up our society needs poverty our economy needs homelessness and a lot of people make a lot of money off of like the homeless industry you know people are profiting off of and so I think we have to get into that bigger question of if you are making your money off of providing the in quote solutions you know do you actually want to address what is causing this and I think that's where it's important too that the conversation expands. This is a racial issue. This is a gender issue. This has a history of, like, sundown towns. Like, literally, only white people being allowed to exist publicly after dark. Um, And so that's another thing is in the kind of rhetoric of services. I think there's a tendency to try and avoid the fact that not allowing certain bodies to exist in public space is deeply rooted to structures in our society. And so I think that's another reason... I know this isn't the question, but that people are uncomfortable with talking about it, you know, because the solution, like, I'm not saying people shouldn't have access to beds and to food, like, but we can't call those solutions, you know, those are, like, not the ultimate solution to a structural problem, so.
0: Can you explain kind of what happened that night that uh, 10 people were arrested, like, what was that process and... What was kind of the... the uh, Like, what did you see during that time? Yeah.
1: So, um, kind of close... As the day started to wind down, more and more people left. I um, think there was a hope. At least, I won't speak for anyone else. I had a hope that a lot of people would stay that day if they could. Because um, the goal was never to have Sustainability Park possibly be the set location for the tiny home village. But we're really trying to make explicit that this was like DHA land. This is public land that again, and we're seeing this happen all over Denver and all over the country, being sold to private developers that are gonna make a lot of money here. Um, And so we were, there were 10 of us and I think a lot more people and there's a variety of reasons that people can't risk um, arrest or engaging with the police um, weren't going to leave, like, these five houses and these five homes that were just built. Um, and so there was kind of some back and forth, but when it became clear that the police were probably on their way, like, we just kind of ate some food <laughs> and talked and um, continued to work on building the houses. I mean, the it's we're so caught up in the bureaucracy and all of this red tape when I think so much was proven that day of like, okay, well, as we continue debating how to not let hundreds of people die on the streets every year in one day, when a community comes together, we built like straight up five homes. And, um, we all ended up in one of the larger houses when the police got there and we're just singing. Um, and they took us out one by one and drove us off the land. And then there's a really, folks are interested, you can find a time-lapse video on YouTube um, and you can watch city come in. I'm pretty sure I'm not positive, but I, I mean the amount of money that the city spent, they hired a disaster relief company to come tear down the houses. Um, and that was thousands of dollars worth of building material. Um, but yeah, yeah. So do are there more specifics? I'm,
0: yeah. What did the actual police presence look like? Like, how many people mm-hmm. were there? Like, did they show up with just no, like but, police or? No,
1: yeah, it was like SWAT situation. Yeah, there. <laughs> um, that was probably the most guns that I've personally ever obviously been around. They were sweeping, um, I think checking for weapons or all kinds of stuff. Um, There was a huge perimeter. Uh, There were helicopters. Um, It was a lot of weaponry to remove 10 people that were singing and trying to build houses for people trying to survive. Um, Yeah, and the police were not friendly at all.
0: So when the city talks about kind of like resources that either can't be devoted to homeless services and kind of the things that are the band-aids, what are the optics of Uh, so many police and so much equipment being used to arrest people that really aren't a danger Uh, like what are the optics of that uh, being worth spending money on versus actual services
1: yeah to me the optics are we would much rather spend money criminalizing bodies like criminalizing people than actually um, helping them and the DU like did a huge study this is like I, I think it was for only 14 of the ordinances because there's something in the whole state of colorado like 371 or ordinances or laws that criminalize homelessness um, and acts of survival and for just like 14 of those they looked and i think it was five million dollars the city's spending um nationally locally we know that the cheapest option if you're coming at it from a fiscal place is like just putting people in housing the cost of um, one citation is over $200 that goes into the policing costs associated with that um, and to me that gets back to the optics I think really show that our entire criminal justice system that's and is really attached to the ways that a lot of I think the city thinks about making money and spending money, um, are actually like all of us are like people that pay taxes. If you're paying taxes, your tax dollars instead of going to alleviate why people end up on the streets. So having public housing, like not having um, having more mental health services, having decent education, accessible to everyone. (laughs) I mean, the list there goes on. Um, We would much rather, it seems, spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars punishing people for existing.
0: So that night you were detained, were you arrested and brought to jail, and what were your charges and kind of what was the criminal process that followed that night?
1: Yeah, um i got put in the lake denver county just right down here on colfax um and bail was set at a hundred dollars i think 110 maybe um and i was i think most of us were there from for a little over 12 hours um and i ended up getting charged with trespassing um i got some i got given community service um, for community service and I was on uh, probation and I was not allowed in that vicinity of Sustainability Park for a year afterwards. Um, there was some variation with the 10 different cases, but I would—I am hesitant to speak to anyone else's court case. But yeah, I got, I got charged with trespassing on, on public property.
0: You said you're part of two different student organizations and you have an affiliation with Denver Homeless Out Loud. Do you think that there's broader values that connect those three groups and like why you've been involved with them?
1: Yeah, for me, homelessness is really at the heart of how our society is structured. Um, I think something I've realized in talking to people more and more is that there's a pretty strong kind of core assumption we carry with us that homelessness is somehow normal and natural that you know whatever we do some people need to be homeless or need um, to be poor or deserve to be homeless and deserve to be poor Um, as a student as a young person in this country I mean part of my personal desire to be working on finding actual structural and systemic changes to the things that literally produce and manufacture homelessness so that certain people can make money off of it Um, because like I don't expect to necessarily have a home you know I don't expect to have social security I don't expect for most of my generation to have any of these safety nets I think we're watching them get pulled pretty quickly and I think what it comes down to is homelessness is a manifestation of the values of our society of this culture of how we determine that some people, some identities are worthy of being humans and can have access to the things that sustain them and can do that without it being illegal and other people can't. And so I think for students, we actually play a really key role. I'm down on the Auraria campus and our three campuses and AHEC, the state entity that owns the campus, um, actually have lobbied against the right to rest uh, or homeless bill of rights that tries to make it legal for people to engage in acts of survival like protecting themselves from the elements um, sharing food sleeping in their car expecting a certain amount of privacy and I think that students need to understand how our administration and our institutions historically and currently are pretty big players and like whether that's what they're invested in Um, How they make their money, the research they're allowed to do or not allowed to do, um, the people that are on those boards, um, really impact policy that's broader and I was part of a class this semester that started to do some research into homelessness, specifically at a among the student population because there's not a lot of scholarship compared to like K through 12 nationally on how university students are impacted by homelessness. And there was a big community college, like 24 schools in California came up with figures of like 11 to 14% of community college students are experiencing homelessness. Here, um, there was an MSU professor that looked into it um, for UC Denver. And we hit uh, our goal, so statistically, this information is considered viable and accurate. Our number was 9.7% of students have experienced homelessness as we defined it. And this this is huge. So on one end, we have our administration spending our money to lobby in favor of criminalizing people for being poor and for trying to exist, while claiming that they are serving their students some of whom are on this campus right now like we're on campus and some folks aren't going to have anywhere to go um so yeah to me if we can't address homelessness we can't like address anything i think it's so fundamental um i can't imagine how many of the things like problems we deal with would go away if every single person just knew they at least had a place to sleep tonight and had like, good, healthy food and a sense of community, I think um, that in and of itself would address so many things. And we could stop wasting so much money on a criminal injustice system that, like, it needs to keep these... Like, it needs to produce crime to have a purpose. And, like, until we could talk about those things, I... I mean, yeah, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but Auraria, especially, was built like through displacing an entire community. And so these are patterns that continue to repeat. And I think in Denver, too, if there was a, ideally, a lot of folks, but if a lot of students and like young people really came to understand that when you're walking by someone that you feel like is living on the streets and that that seems so far away, I mean, A, it's really not. I think more people realize that than, Like, I think homelessness is uncomfortable because a lot of us realize that it's not that far away, Um, but this is a fight for our future, I think, and... It's sad. sad. Let's go into, a, let's be indebted our whole lives to give money to people that punish folks for trying to exist, Just makes a lot of sense.
0: Denver Homeless Out Loud has brought this issue to the court uh, when they uh, decided to challenge the urban camping ban when three individuals were assigned tickets and brought to court on charges of illegal or unauthorized camping. And during that trial, I ran into Tony Robinson, who was the political science chair for University of Colorado Denver. And he was there on behalf of Denver Homeless Out Loud to testify as somebody who is an expert in the field of observing the patterns of homelessness and how we treat it in different cities. And so I interviewed him as well to get his perception of what that case looked like and um, and what we can actually do about the situation. Um, so can you state your name and your title and kind of any organizations that you're affiliated with?
2: So I'm, uh, whatever I to be. So I, um, I'm Tony Robinson, Associate Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at CU Denver. Uh, I've worked with a number of organizations over the years, most importantly, El Centro Humanitario, uh, Denver Homeless Out Loud, uh, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, uh, Padres Unidos, Newshead Community Development Corporation.
0: So can you, um, so you had testified in the Denver Homeless Out Loud case. Can you kind of explain like what brought you to that point and what your experience was?
2: Okay, that's a big question. So if I was to, you you got the big long sweep and then a very immediate. If you look at the big long sweep, uh, you know, I'm just one of those guys. I I grew up homeless for, so about, I do not remember it much, but till about uh, seven years old and then was poor from then on. My mom and my family were very, very poor. So as I made my way to college, that was always an inspiration or always something that I carried with me, which was I needed my education to remain relevant and important to my kind of community of origin, to my family, to my mother who really struggled. Um, so as a professor, that's what I've focused my studies on is um, affordable housing and homelessness and gentrification are themes that I really focus on in what I teach and research uh, my PhD work was focused on participant observation in homeless communities and involving myself in the, in the political life of people who are homeless and trying to mobilize to protect their um, and assert their own rights. So here in Denver, for the last 10 years, there's been an ongoing movement to assert the rights of, of homeless people to claim public space. That goes back to Denver Tent City that I've been involved in Denver Tent City about 10 years ago. Uh, push for these rights and it was unsuccessful and was bulldozed and some people were arrested and I was involved in those politics. So most recently when Denver Homeless Out Loud became a very vigorous uh, grassroots driven organization of people that were experiencing homelessness and student activists and other allies in the community and it just kind of emerged organically as this sense of outrage at the Denver Camping Ban um, and other ordinances. But that ordinance specifically, the Denver Camping Ban, That outraged a lot of people, including me like really, really deeply. That was just one of the most foul and vile pieces of legislation I can remember happening in this city. And it kind of re-energized me. as <laughs> was like, this is just absolutely outrageous and something's gotta change and, and I'm, I'm nauseous. Um, and I think a lot of people felt that and Denver Homeless Out Loud kind of emerged out of that and kind of out of Occupy as well. These kind of themes came together, the Occupy Denver movement. So that just, got me fired up again and literally students showed up in my office, not, well some students, but Trees Howard showed up in my office and said, hey, these, we're doing this thing and if we do this survey, would you analyze the results and like put them together in a scholarly report? And I felt um, unable to say no <laughs> based on my own moral morality but also because I was guilty that people were actually doing things and, and I realized I sit up here a lot and have a pretty nice life in this office. And so I, I was inspired again to get involved. And that got me involved with Denver Homeless Out Loud, and I produced the study based on their survey, a couple of studies. And that was submitted to testimony during the uh, legislative session, and that's how I got there. A little rambly it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so during the legal case with Denver Homeless Out Loud, you also testified during that. What was your experience uh, in the courtroom uh, for that case?
2: In the case so I didn't testify during the courtroom oh. right so I didn't testify I, I, I put together an expert affidavit so they call on scholars to put together you know expert affidavits based on social science of how homeless people are treated and I produced my affidavit of in fact homeless people are systematically uh, you know targeted by the police for discriminatory law enforcement Um, Based on these ordinances, that they will apply to homeless people in the way that they don't apply to people who aren't experiencing homelessness. For example, um, using a blanket in a park. And I have to, so I have my expert testimony that says, yes, police do this. Yes, it's discriminatory. Yes, it has negative effects in their life. And I do this based on all this, my life as a scholar. The judge in this case um, determined that that testimony was irrelevant. And it was irrelevant because the city was just trying to put these people on trial for violating a specific law. They said, you violated this law. The law says you cannot use a blanket in public, and you were using a sleeping bag. So that is specifically against the law. The defense, that is, the team I was kind of a part of, we were trying to put the law on trial, Mm -hmm. claiming that the law itself is is unjust on its face, and it's unjust in its application. So we were bringing all this science proving that it had nothing to do with whether the, the fact that these individuals did it. In fact, they did. They did use a blanket. They did use a sleeping bag. But we had to prove that the law itself was unconstitutional and incorrect. But the judge determined that was irrelevant, that we weren't going to put the law on trial. We were just going to put the facts on trial. Did they do it or did they not? So the judge determined that my testimony was irrelevant, and so I didn't actually testify. I did sit in the courtroom and observe it, so you know, I have observations based on that, but, but I didn't testify.
0: So what is your uh, opinion of the result of that court case, the, the guilty verdict that was determined?
2: Yeah, that's outrageous, right? And I would I hope anyone listening to this, thinking about this issue, thinks really long on the heart about what, what that verdict really means. You had one guy, let's just take one of these guys, he's an old shrimper, he worked all his life and, and then he got a disease in his back, they had to cut part of his back out. So he's an old, broken man in terms of his physical ability to work. You know, he cannot do the work that he's always done. He's been diseased, life has just dealt him a horrible hand of cards, and now he's broken, he can't work, he will, he will get weepy and sad when he talks to you. And so you have this individual, so you have this individual who, you know, is himself distressed at his life, unable to work, poor, living on our streets, the judge said to him a couple of things. One is, you now owe us as a community about fifty hours of community service. That is, he owes to me sitting in this office. He owes to, you know, the banks and the whole city of Denver. You must get out and work for us for fifty hours. In addition to that, if we catch you again using a sleeping bag, you're probably going to jail because we're gonna give you your probation. And the judge says, What that means, if we catch you again, you're going to jail. And this is what we're telling this I'm not sure how old he is, 55, 60 year old guy who can barely move anymore, that's his penalty. And when you add those up, all all three of the people on trial have their own stories like that that led them there, and it's a pretty, benign, uh, it's a pretty cruel society when, you know, those, uh, when, when we exact these kind of penalties on those who have nothing, very little to live among us, like very, very little, just acting, please, just asking, please get your foot off my neck. And I'm barely trying to survive down here. And we have a cruel society that says not only will we not get our foot off your neck, but now you owe us community service. And if we catch you again, you're going to jail. It, it's immensely cruel.
0: So, um, the issue on trial was the urban camping ban, or at least that was why the defendants were initially charged. And another thing that Denver Homeless Out Loud was doing to try to to alleviate the criminalization of homelessness is try to pass the Right to Rest Act. Uh, Auraria Higher Education Center has been lobbying against that for the past two years. Do you have any thoughts on that? And kind of like, they use the notion of student safety to claim why they're doing that. Do you have any thoughts on on that?
2: That's that's a that's a form of purposeful willed ignorance on the form of university elites, university officials. Um, that is really disheartening at a place that you know, one of the few places in society that you believe and wish to be dedicated to um, to truth, to uh, standing up to where the to standing up for where the evidence and facts lead us, and to standing for a humane moral position. If you look at evidence and facts, we know that these camping bans do not work. They don't work. All the scholars say so. They they harm homeless people. They do not increase public safety. They do not lead homeless people to like improve their lives and get jobs and move into housing. All the evidence shows that. So, so there is no evidence-based reason to support these rules. There is no evidence that homeless people commit more crimes, actually, than people that have homes. In fact, it's the opposite. Homeless people are far less likely to commit a violent crime than someone who has a home and they're far more likely to be violated by someone who has a home beat up robbed stabbed raped those are all facts and anybody in power on any university should know that or certainly can know that and probably has had those facts put in front of them so they can see them and yet the university turns away from that in an act of kind of willed ignorance of um, we are going to refuse to do something that is moral and right and that the facts lead us to because of a simple, ignorant prejudice against weak and vulnerable people. And we believe that if we do this, maybe the business people around here will be more friendly to us. And, you know, that they will be more likely to maybe give us donations or students that maybe come from the suburbs or somewhere else or any student that might get anxious or on the side of poverty will feel better on our campus and and we will sacrifice the truth to kind of a saw, you know, to um, mitigate... This kind of ignorant fear among some students, maybe on campus, those are um, ignorant and disheartening positions. They don't belong at a university that deserves a title of, of a place of learning and, and moral authority. And I'm, I'm I'm disappointed deeply in whoever at my university or any university makes that decision. They should be ashamed.
0: Do you think there's anything students can do to? Uh kind of hold the university's feet to the fire or the, the uh, campus itself to hold them accountable for what they've done?
2: Sure. I mean, in the end, students, it isn't just students, faculty could as well. Anybody united, all of the faculty or a huge chunk of students who are united and act on their, their, their unity um, will compel results. <laughs> They'll compel results. So if you had a large number of students Choosing effective resistance, and this could be things ranging from, um, you know, consistent occupation movements on campus. You know, we're going to like sit on campus every day, or we're going to claim space and make you tear down our tents publicly, or we're going to be writing letters constantly to, um, to, to the regents. In fact, showing up at regents meetings and holding signs, or you know, all of these creative actions, you can creative disruption. You know, what Martin Luther King long ago called uh, creative tension, that that you create tension, you force uh, your opponent to to deal with you and to be annoyed by you. But that creates a tension that is creative because in the end, if the moral authority is on your side and someone is forced to, like, in a brutal way, uphold a wrong position, that becomes hopelessly demoralizing on their part. And in the end, they probably collapse because they can't keep up with this immoral position when they're faced constantly with the moral courage of people that keep pushing back. So yes, yeah, students could do that. Faculty could, too. Um, you know, it's, it's always disappointing in society that you don't have more vigorous resistance and action than you think there should be. But, but we're kind of all, you know, many of us are part of it. It's easy to kind of go about your day and pay attention to the things that make you busy. It, it typically, it often is students and young people who, who have more, I guess, maybe fire, who are less uh, you know anchored into the system, maybe by kids or the demands of their job or something. That young people seem more able, often, to um, take a moral stand and, and and provoke tension. And in doing so, they often get their elders, their parents, their teachers, to follow along <laughs> to say, "Oh, you fired me up again. You've got you you've reawakened my courage and my commitment." So I think students have a real important role in that regard.
0: So Tony mentioned uh, the fact that the judge had found his testimony to be irrelevant to the case. And I think that's something that's really important to note, is that in the case of uh, the three individuals who are challenging their unauthorized camping charges and who are eventually found guilty of those charges, I think it's important to note that everyone in this case is doing their job. And that doesn't mean it's right, but the fact is, is that law enforcement is doing their job by taking blankets from homeless people and by criminalizing them for sleeping in public or just trying to survive. And in turn, the city's attorney the city attorney's office is doing their job by prosecuting these cases, or specifically this case. The judge is doing her job by ensuring a conviction, and it was very clear throughout that case that she did. And then the jury is doing their job by by delivering a guilty verdict. And A good indicator of why that's the case and why they're just doing their job is because the jury actually asked uh, whether or not they could pay their fines if they found the defendants who were homeless guilty of unauthorized camping, and they actually had trouble trying to fill a full jury that uh, didn't see this law as being just inherently wrong. And so this would indicate that the jury itself knew that this law is wrong. They knew that it was wrong to assign a guilty verdict, but that they did so because that was something that they were supposed to do. And this speaks to the fact that city council has determined that this is what everyone's job is, at least in this situation. And I struggle to believe that law enforcement, or that anyone in law enforcement, signs up to be a police officer with the intent that they want to take blankets from homeless people, but that is their job in Denver. And so this speaks to more rooted, systemic issues that don't that aren't solved by just telling law enforcement to stop doing this or to, you know, say that we need to divert things or energy into finding, into uh, into funding nonprofits and different organizations that are working on the issue, because as Kobe had mentioned earlier, all these organizations are just creating band-aids for a problem that we're not addressing at its roots roots root issue and specifically with the criminalization of homelessness. What Denver Homeless Out Loud is trying to do is remove that aspect of this whole situation because that inhibits people from actually getting out of their circumstance. But more importantly, puts them in positions where they will never get out, but that they may be in danger for their situation and where we're treating homeless people a certain way because of the stigma of being homeless and just being in poverty in general and i don't know what the answers are and i certainly don't think that we are doing anything helpful with regards to how we are criminalizing people who are just trying to survive but what's clear at least in my mind is that our city is violating human rights and in fact the u.s justice department has determined that policies like denver's are violations of the constitution and so at some point we're setting ourselves up for a constitutional challenge to denver's practices but ultimately change requires us getting around the, the notion that people are looking for handouts or that they have done something wrong to be in the situation they're in because I don't believe that's true and I think that what Kobe said about how a lot of things function to profit off of these, these situations um, I think speaks to exactly how the city addresses the issue and how it's viewed through the lens of legislators and people who are in positions to influence change um, but just to kind of wrap up, I think that what we need to do is understand that people are just looking to survive. And if we can't even get to that point in society, then I think that we need to seriously challenge our values and, as a result, challenge our practices. And hopefully, what we do doesn't end up in somebody else like Michael Marshall being killed or other people being criminalized for just existing. So, Uh, Again, I'm Vinny Cervantes, and thank you for listening, and I hope that this has uh, at least informed or given you some insight into my lens of the situation.